Okay, so we're on week five out of 12 of a series called Spiritual Fitness based on a book uh, by Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline. And each week kind of stands alone. Um, but uh, you know, put them all together, and I hope that we're a, a more spiritually deep congregation. Uh, and this seems like an appropriate time. We've had a little bit of growth over the last quarter, and as we anticipate the possibility that that would continue, it stri strikes me as a very valuable thing to make sure our roots go deep. We don't want to be the institution that's so concerned about numbers that we become shallow and forget to you know, forget our source. And so these spiritual disciplines are a chance to really just focus in on where is, what is the source of our strength. They're not about salvation. They're really more about spiritual health. How can I be a healthy believer, the kind of believer that, uh, that has realigned his thinking in accordance with God's thinking? Uh, and, and we use the Bible for that, of course. And so the last month we did the inward disciplines, meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. This month... Uh, we're at the start of a new four-week mini-series within the series on the outward disciplines, and these always look very medieval to me. Um, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Seems like after this month we'll be ready for the monastery, which uh, well, I guess one of the reasons they had monasteries in the Middle Ages, because that kind of isolated community was a good place to practice these. I found that Brevard County in the year 2008 isn't really a great place to practice some of these others, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service, and yet it's not impossible or else the Bible wouldn't call us to it, but we are, we are going to have to swim upstream a little bit if we're going to, to realign our thinking. Uh, and then next month we get to the corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Simplicity is an inward reality that leads to an outward lifestyle, and we're deceiving ourselves if we think we can change our hearts without it producing a corresponding change in our behavior. On the other hand, beware of trying to just change your outward behavior without changing your heart. That's one of the definitions of legalism. That's when I try to put on a, a show of simplicity, when down deep I'm really just every bit as hungry for the good things of life as I used to be. That's a recipe for frustration. Ecclesiastes 7.30 says, God made man upright, and one of the translations uses the word simple, which I think is appropriate here. But men have gone in search of many schemes. That describes our world, I think, pretty well. I think I can help explain simplicity by contrasting it with duplicity. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, and yet many of us uh, deceive ourselves into thinking we can live with sort of a, a, a foot in each world or a, a, foot, a march in, in each kingdom. Simplicity brings freedom where duplicity brings bondage. Simplicity, simplicity brings joy and balance, where duplicity brings anxiety and fear. As I look at that list, uh, the two sort of sub-lists, which, th which three more accurately describe the world we live in? Do we live in a world of freedom, joy, and balance? Or do we live in a world of bondage, anxiety, and fear? And, and the irony of this is, you know, we're, 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 we've got better equipment than ever, we're better clothed and housed and fed, than, than people have ever been. And, and you would think that that would produce some, some satisfaction and some joy, and yet the world we live in, I think, is, is, is characterized by a good bit of bondage. When I think of bondage, I think of uh, addiction and anxiety and fear. And uh, you know, so many, of our, many in our world are, are medicated for that or are, are just struggling through, and yet, it, it, to me, it's a, um, 
It doesn't have to be. Uh, a life of s simple devotion to God can free us from that. Uh, Richard Byrd, the, uh, the explorer, uh, spent several weeks with just the, what he needed to survive, and, and he wrote in his journal, I'm learning that man can live profoundly without masses of things. Well, that's, you know, he learned it by necessity. That's harder for us because we, we, we practice our lives using the abundance of things, and we grow somewhat dependent on them. Foster says, uh, Richard Foster, the author of the book, says that our attachment to possessions is psychotic, which struck me as a weird word to use. But psychotic means um, out of touch with reality. And he says our attachment to possessions is, puts us in a place where we're out of touch with reality. Mary Edmonds said it this way, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And when I first read that quote, my, my response was, well, I like them. Um, I, do, I couldn't argue with any of the other parts, but I, I, I do like them. Um, uh, but I, I think the point here is that if they're, are, if they're your true friends, then how hard do you have to work to impress them? To me, one of the definitions of a friend is the, the kind who, who sees all the way into your heart without laughing or yawning, and, and you don't have to show off for them. And so, um, so I, th I think this definitely does describe our world today. Simplicity might seem like a lost dream, but it's not. It's a recurring theme throughout church history. Uh, the, the, the words that Jesus speaks, we're going to read a lot of his, his words today, uh, were directed at the materialism of his day, but they still ring true 2,000 years later. And they've rung true all along. And yet there's been this sort of counterculture, this countercurrent of, no, I don't want to embrace the materialism of the world. I want to embrace the, embrace the simplicity of devotion to God. And that's occurred throughout history as well. And we have an opportunity for it today. So, so Foster and I are encouraging you to, uh, to an experiment, to, to find the place, to, to ask the Holy Spirit to show you the place in your life where you've kind of bought in to some of the lies of our society, where you can sort of move in those boundaries and, and become more, uh, more simple. Leviticus, well, actually, let me, before I read that, I want to make the, plain, the, the point plain. We're going to go on like a tour from the Old Testament to the words of Jesus to the uh, epistles of the New Testament and find that the Bible is not at all neutral on economic issues. You might think that, well, you know, my money's a private thing and what I do with that. Well, as far as you and I are concerned, it's a private thing. But as far as you and God are concerned, it's not. Um, and Jesus made a plain that the way you handle your treasure is, uh, shows where your heart is. Uh, the Bible is unmistakably against uh, exploitation of the poor. It's unmistakably against the accumulation of wealth. And there's no way to, to, to sort of soft pedal that. In fact, even the, the right to own property, which we claim is a sort of a cherished American tradition, that's not a biblical value. That's a value of the Enlightenment philosophers who who talked about natural rights and the right to property. And it's part of our founding documents. I'm a patriotic American. Don't, 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 don't get uncomfortable thinking, oh, what kind of commie talk is this now? Um, it's not that. My point is, I, I want you to understand that our cherished American traditions are based on enlightenment philosophy, in some cases not based on biblical standards. Look at what Leviticus says. The Lord was talking to Moses. He said, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. In Psalms, it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means that the earth and everything in it belongs to God. If the earth and everything in it belongs to God, how much of it belongs to me? I'm, I'm, I'm not that great at math, but I can do that one. 
Uh, none of it belongs to me. Um, and so it's, it's like step one in the crown ministry principles when you take this class. If I recognize my position as a steward of the things that God's entrusted to me rather than the owner, it changes my perspective on life. God's entrusted stuff to my care, and I'm accountable before him for how I use it. And yet the way of the world is, I, bet, I, I worked hard, I got this, this is mine, I'm going to protect my stuff from you. And that's, that's, not, that's an American way, it's not a biblical way. Psalm 62.10 says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. That's hard to do. Uh, the more you get, the more, the more comfortable we are, the more we, we, we cherish and treasure our comforts. Proverbs 11.28 says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Jesus, um, in his teachings, declared war on ma the materialism of his age, and, and we can see it as applicable to our age, I'm sure. Luke 16, 13, Jesus said, No servant can, turn, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have al already received your comfort. And then in Matthew 6, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sort of lays out the ethical principles of the kingdom of God. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice, this is a sermon, but this last part isn't really preaching. Jesus isn't saying what, where your heart should be or should not be. What he's saying is that this is the way the world works. This is where your heart will be. It's, it's going to be where your treasure is. So we need to be careful where we place our treasure. In Matthew 19, Jesus has this exchange with the rich young ruler, where the rich young ruler sort of quizzes him, really just wants to validate himself. And Jesus sees right through him to his heart and recognizes that it's his love for possessions that's keeping the rich young ruler from following wholeheartedly. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, that's complete. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, I think about this, and I think, so does, is the answer for the rich young ruler the same as the answer for me? And I honestly, honestly don't think so, because the poor don't want my possessions. They've got enough problems. Uh, get my possessions won't, won't be much of a value to them. And yet, I think it's possible to do this preemptively, where you can live a life that's generous to others and... and you don't have to bother selling uh, possessions you haven't accumulated. And so I, I, feel, I feel called to it more in advance than, than in the aftermath. This guy was already a rich young ruler. You know, I'm just a simple history teacher. I don't have all that many possessions to, to my possessions wouldn't be much help. Yet my life, my time, my talent, you know, that's, that's my treasure, and I can give that generously. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And in Luke 12, 33, he said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. That provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. I think that's a really cool thing. A, a year or so ago, we passed out a Randy Alcorn book called The Treasure Principle, which was a, it, it, it sort of 
moved my foundations in a pretty key way. And the treasure principle is basically this. You can't take it with you, but you can send some of it on ahead. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs that giving to the poor is like lending to God, which is such a cool concept to me because there's just no other. I can't imagine in any way saying, well, God, you owe me now. And yet he says in Proverbs, giving to the poor is like lending to him. And I imagine he pays back with better interest than what I could work out on my own. I'm going to read in its entirety the parable of the rich farmer and with, with less comment than before because we did the whole message on this uh, back in the spring when we did our parable series, but it, it's, it's very connected to the message on simplicity. This is uh, found in Luke chapter 12. Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And the, the key thing about this parable, like any parable, is it often has a surprise ending. What's, what's this guy doing wrong? He's not doing anything wrong. This is good planning. This is good strategy. He's just being a faithful steward. God's entrusted him with lots of good crops. He needs to take care of them. It would be wasteful for him to, to throw them, to just let them rot. So there's nothing bad happening here in the first part of the parable. But let's read on. Verse 19, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, well, here's where he crossed the line. It's in his internal dialogue. And, and maybe some of you recognize this. This is really the, the, the simplest articulation of what I would call Epicurean philosophy. Epicurus was a Hellenistic age philosopher, lived a couple hundred years before Jesus. And that was their idea that this material world that we can see and feel is all there is. And that, you know, they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. And so why not? Just enjoy yourselves all you want. Which we don't call it Epicureanism anymore, or not so much. But it strikes me as a philosophy that's very attractive in our age, that our, our world, we may not say it out loud that much, but um, it's very commonplace in our world to live life as if there's nothing else, and we might as well just indulge ourselves as much as we possibly can, because this is all there is. And so when this guy articulates this philosophy, of course, Jesus would have known, the Hellenistic age philosophers, his audience would have known that this was a common philosophy coming from Greece, and so this character in the story is articulating this, this, this philosophy. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And there's the conclusion of the parable. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And so that's the key, the attitude of do I, want, do I need to accumulate and protect my own treasure or am I, am I rich towards God? And if I'm rich towards God, I'm going to be rich towards the things God cares about. I'm going to be rich towards the people God, God commands us to be care, uh, rich towards. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And, and what he's saying here is, is the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, there is nothing we give up that will make us sorry we gave it up to pursue the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 6.30, Jesus said, Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And this, this attitude of generosity isn't just Jesus. You see it portrayed throughout the epistles as well. Timothy was a young pastor that Paul put in position. Paul planted a church, put Timothy, left Timothy as the shepherd of that church, and then he continued on his journeys to plant more churches, and then wrote letters back to Timothy as a young pastor to coach him on how to pastor his church. 
And so when I read Paul's letters to Timothy, I often kind of put myself in the Timothy role and imagine that the Holy Spirit's coaching me on how to pastor this church. And here's what Paul, uh, what Paul wrote to Timothy. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Well, that looks familiar, doesn't it? And in his constructions on church leaders, um, Paul gave these two guidelines or these two boundaries. Uh, they had like a two-tiered leadership, elder and deacon. An elder could not be a lover of money, and a deacon could not pursue dishonest gain, which seems kind of obvious to us, but, but, but it's key. It's fundamental. In Hebrews 13, it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Take a look at the last part. Why is it that we can be content? Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you really believe that? Now, if you do, or if... Let me flip it around. If you don't, then it's going to be hard to let go. Then you're, you're going to live a life that's anxious and, and desperate to hold on. But if you really truly believe that, that God has said I'll never leave you and, and you can count on him to keep that, then what do we have to worry about? In Ephesians, Paul gives a list of, of sort of the bad things of the, that we don't want to be associated with. And it's curious... Uh, this list is kind of curious to me. For This is Ephesians 5.5. 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, the church is sort of famous for standing against immorality, but not quite so traditionally opposed to greed. And yet, Paul makes it plain that, that, both, that both immorality and greediness are forms of idolatry. In, in 1 Corinthians, he kind of expands on the same concept. Now I'm writing you <clears throat> that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. <clears throat> Something that really stood out to me as I read this passage this week, if you read the two verses that are before, Paul makes it extra plain that there's a distinction between how we treat the world outside of church and our Christian brothers and sisters. And there's a double standard, and the standard is stricter inside than it is outside. And he makes it plain that he's, he's not talking about associating with sinners, because um, Jesus did, and Paul, Paul says something like, you'll never get to go anywhere. You, know, you, never, you'll, you can't live in the world without associating with people who don't believe like you do. But notice in this verse, it's anyone who calls himself a brother. So it's, it's, in our, it's in our church community that we need to be careful to avoid these things. Immorality, greediness, idolatry, slandering, drunkenness, and, and, and swindling. Um, and it's just kind of curious to me how all over the place this list is. And some of these, the church has a long traditional reputation for standing against. And others, we sort of give them a pass. I'm going to step off to give just a very quick comment on uh, on the political landscape that we live in. Um, the slanderer stood out at me. Um, uh, how would I say this in a way that, uh, <laughs> that won't come back to haunt me later? Um, if we take them at their word, and I think we have no legitimate choice but to take them at their word, both of the candidates for president this year 
are our brothers in Christ. And yet, I think I see in the name of partisan political behavior, um, not unkind things, uh, kind of passed back and forth, and sometimes things that would reach the level of slander, uh, certainly things that would reach the level of gossip. And so my point is this, I'm for participating in the political process, and I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to coach you on how to participate in a partisan way, but I'm going to tell you this, that kingdom of God ethics are not superseded by partisan political beliefs. Um, you know, play the game, participate in the process all you want, but remember, we're citizens in the, of the kingdom of heaven first and foremost, and in the name of you know, this organization or that organization or even the United States of America, it's not appropriate for us to set aside the commands of Jesus in order to march under another banner. Um, now I'm going to go back to uh, simplicity. <laughs> that's, all I, that's probably all I have on politics between now and the election. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave you alone with that. Here's, here's what Paul said to Timothy on how to lead his congregation. And there's a funny word in here I like because uh, it, it just amuses me. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy, so I'm reading these words as for me. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So Paul's writing to Timothy, but I'm going to receive these words as the Holy Spirit to me. So... I command you, I'm, I'm going to command you now, don't be arrogant, don't put your hope in wealth, put your hope in God, do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous, be willing to share. Those are my commands this morning. <laughs> I don't know why that word just amuses me so much. I guess churches operated differently a couple thousand years ago than they do now. But check it out, if you do what I command... Look at what happens in verse 19. You will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I think it's easier for us to see this instead of seeing it as my command. I'm going to look at it as Paul's command and receive it as the Holy Spirit's command. And I want that treasure. I want that treasure, the, the life that is truly life. Now, anytime we talk about simplicity, there are people who want to swing the pendulum too far the other way and embrace in base, abasement or humiliation just for the sake of humiliation. And that's a mistake. Um, you know, I've, I've used the joke for years that I'm, I'm proud of my humility. Um, and and if, we, if, we, if we pursue self-denial just for its own sake, that can become an idol that'll leave us just as empty spiritually as pursuing possessions for possession's sake. Uh, the word for that is asceticism. And that's this extreme self-denial. I'm, I'm more holy and godly than you because I got less stuff than you. That's asceticism. Asceticism renounces possessions and it finds contentment through that kind of abasement and it's false religion. Don't go there. Simplicity, on the other hand, sets possessions in their proper perspective and it knows contentment in any circumstance. It's not, it's, it's not I, I got to get rid of my stuff. It's recognizing the, the, the perspective of the stuff that, that makes my attitude more simplistic. Paul said it this way in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
And that takes us back to the Old Testament reading that we started the service with. In Deuteronomy 8, God makes it plain that he's taking his people into a land that's a good land with lots of good stuff. He's not just providing for their needs. He's giving them way more than what they need. He's indulging them. He says in, in Deuteronomy 8, 7, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And then notice the vivid description of how good that land is. With streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. That's some really good land that God's taking them into. And they would have been able to survive and get their needs met in land that wasn't that nice. But the key isn't whether they have good stuff or not. The key is their attitudes. And notice the end of that passage that we read. This is verse 17 and 18. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. So that's the key. It's about your heart, not about your, your bank account or not about your house. It's about your heart. Are you, are you the proud possessor of all that you've earned and therefore you know, the protector and the preserver of that? Or are you the steward of what God's given you? That's, that's the distinction. If it's internal then, how do we know if we're doing it right? I, I, I sure don't want to be the guy that does without stuff just and, and deceive myself into thinking I'm following God because you know, I've known people who don't have much and they seem to be just totally consumed with that. And I've also known people who seem to have a lot and don't seem to be paying attention to it that much. Um, and how do we know? And here's how we know. This is the end of the New Testament reading. Matthew 6:33. Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, Richard Foster, the author of this book we're reading, um, said it this way, the person who does not seek the kingdom first does not seek it at all. Worthy as other concerns may be, the moment they become the focus of our efforts, they become idolatry. So any good thing that you pursue that, that now supersedes your devotion to the kingdom of God, that becomes an idol and it needs to come down. And that's really, as we, as we pray this week and ask the Holy Spirit to show us where are the places where I need to move in the boundary lines um, in order to live a life that's more devoted to you and less devoted to, to building my kingdom, that's, I think, what we need to look for. What good thing are we letting come between us and pursuing the kingdom? Um, I, I feel like I should comment on the, the economic environment of our times. You know, it's, you turn on the news and Chicken Little is, is worried about the sky falling. And I, I feel like I just want to speak to that just a little bit. I've, I've done this for my students in class, and I told them I was going to give a little comforting history lesson. And it's kind of funny because I started off, and it wasn't all that comforting at first. Um, you know, you, you hear the news people, and you just think, oh, this is the end. Um, and and th this is the harbinger of the end of days that we're going downhill, and, and who knows, we'll be... We'll be uh, in, in tribulation time soon <laughs> and I guess to be fair this could be that you know, it could be the beginning of the end and this is when one of my students parked up and said uh, Mr. Deming is this the comforting part because I'm not getting it yet uh, but but everyone who's predicted that so far has been wrong this isn't you know everyone who said this is the beginning of the end they've been wrong and so here's what I know about economics not much I don't know what causes economic ups and downs and, and evidently nobody really does, or else we wouldn't go through these, right? 
But here's what I do know. I, I've been teaching history for 20 years, and so there, there are a few hundred years of American history to study. And if you could draw a chart of the American economic growth and decline, it would look like this. It's a roller coaster. It's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And so here's what I know about the economy. If it's up, it's going down kind of soon. If it's down, it's going up. Now, sometimes the peaks are higher and sometimes the valleys are lower. But if you can chart the course of American history, American economic history, you'll see it up and down and up and down. And so it's, you know, we're, we're the people of God who are depending on him as, as our source. We don't have to, to panic or fret or, or, or fall apart. Here's, here's, here's a way that recognizing what God is, these principles will free you from anxiety even in times like these. My possessions are a gift from God and, and therefore my possessions will be preserved by God. It's not my job to save my stuff. In fact, it's not even my job to save my life. It's my job to spend my life. It's my job to be a steward of my stuff in a way that will honor God. And, and therefore my possessions are available to others. If I, if I preemptively decide to be generous and to share, then I don't have to worry about other people getting their hands on my stuff because I've already decided that that's an okay thing to do. And you, we can all do that. And so I want to finish with some of Foster's principles. And when, whenever you go from the theoretical to the practical, there's always this danger of legalism. Um, and everybody kind of, as, as I, I suspect as you hear this message, that, that you're thinking, all right, here's something I do, but I don't do that. Or, or I've got a, kind of a close boundary here, but I'm sort of careless there. And, and we all have places where I, I think the tendency is to be supportive of our standards and judgmental of the other guy's standards. And, and so and, you know, I want to encourage you not to do that. I'll, I'll try to give a practical example. Um, the, the Demings, we don't spend much on cars. You know, we don't make car payments. And we, you know, we drive nice cars, nice enough, but we don't spend a lot on them. Don't spend a whole lot on preserving them. Don't, 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 don't make payments. Don't, we, they're just not a big source. You know, they get us there, but they're not a big source of, of pride and, and investment and treasure. Um, and, and it would be easy for us, if, if we're not careful, to be judgmental of people who have nicer cars. Oh, look how, you can tell where their treasure is, they're driving it around. And yet, I'm sure that other people just decide in a different way, and they would look in our house and say, boy, the Deming sure spend a lot on clothes. Um, and you know, I'm sure we spend more than we need to on clothes. And so um, my point is people draw, draw those lines in other places. And we go down to Honduras, and we meet people there, and think, well, you Americans with your three-bedroom houses all to yourself, one family per house, what's with that? You know, what, uh, where'd you get the idea that that was like, how everyone was supposed to live. And so my point is, it's not, you don't have to have my lines. Uh, this week I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can move your own in and, and, that's, and, and live a life that's more simplistic. Uh, that's, that's my point. Um, Ann Straub told me a story a couple weeks ago. She was driving by a church, and you know the, uh, the signs that churches put up, sometimes they're kind of embarrassing, sometimes kind of annoying, every once in a while kind of funny. Uh, but there was this church, I guess it was kind of a seeker-sensitive church, which is interesting to me because I've heard that adjective used to describe us. And the sign said, come to church here, we won't try to change you. And, and Ann and I both reacted the same way to that, like, why bother? Why, 
why bother having a church? Why bother going to church if you, if you don't expect to be changed? And so, I mean, my prayer is that I'll be changed you know, week by week, month by month, year by year, and to become more Christ-like. And the way we do that is align, try to align our thinking to his. And so you know, I'm not going to try to change you in a hands-on way, but I sure hope that in, in, in teaching you and encouraging you to pray about these things that you will see yourselves change. And that, you know, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to change us all. And, and that's one of the reasons we're here, or, or we shouldn't bother, right? So these are Foster's principles. I'll go through these fast. Just ten principles for how you can examine your own life and see. Actually, these are more direct. He thinks this is Foster saying you should do this thing. Buy things for their, use, use, their usefulness rather than their status. Reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Ouch, that one really hurts. If you look at my freezer, you'll find a nice collection of coffee uh, that uh, I really like. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray about that this week. Develop a habit of giving things away. That's something we practice as a church, and I know many of you practice individually. Oh, this one's going to hurt. Refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. Ouch. Gone to meddle now, preacher. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. All right, this is one I like because uh, uh, I'm a big fan of the public library where they have so many things I can enjoy on loan without having to own them. And so, yeah, I, I like that one. All right, next page. There are five more. Develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. This ought to be easy for Florida kids. You know, the beach is free mostly free, and it's really close, and it's beautiful. And it's, you know, some of the natural things that we enjoy around here, like Turkey Creek, which is kind of one of those unsung things, uh, but to me, way more appealing than the concrete jungles in our west. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the beauty of creation is, is a free gift from God that's easy for us to enjoy. Here's a crown principle. Look, look with healthy skepticism at buy now, pay later schemes. In fact, crown's even stronger. They say, you know, look with loathing on those schemes, but uh, you know, be skeptical. Obey Jesus' instructions about plain, honest speech. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. We don't have to overdo it with, with fancy words. Just, just say what you mean, mean what you say. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. That's easy to say yes to. I think a little harder to practice and, and you know, sometimes requires some questioning. And then shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. This is the basic principle. As you pray this week, I don't have a, any other homework assignment than this. Just you know, look back at this list. You can find it on the website. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, is there anything in my life that's distracting me from devotion to you? And if so, then my, my counsel is that you be ruthless in dealing with that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, uh, Lord, I thank you for Richard Foster's book. Holy Spirit, I thank you for using it to, to guide us to scriptures. Uh, and Lord, we want to align our thinking with yours. Lord, Lord, we want to change not only our attitudes, but our behavior in a way that reflects your values. God, help us to be attractive examples of discipleship. Help us to be examples that, of the, the, that a life of faith is a life of peace and balance and joy. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would draw others to you uh, based on what they see in us. Uh, Holy Spirit, if you're calling anybody to respond to today's message, I ask that you would prompt them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.